0: Thanks for listening to this Table Church Sermon Podcast. We are in a sermon series right now called Signs of the Kingdom, where we're taking a look at the seven miraculous signs that Jesus gave in the book of John. What we're learning is that when Jesus performs a miracle, it's never just a miracle. There's always something deeper for us to learn about who God is and about who we are. After all, that's what signs do. They communicate a message. Our prayer is that this sermon will help you know what God is saying to you today. Feel free to reach out to us by emailing hello at tablechurchdsm.org. Thanks for listening. Now, here's this week's teaching.
1: Today's scripture comes from John 2, 1-11. through 11. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him.
0: Awesome. Thanks, Bella. All right. So, uh, I got a quick update I want to give you guys before we dive into the sermon today, Um, and it has to do with our masking policy. As most of you probably know right now, we say masks are optional. Uh, throughout the church, except for in the kids' ministry spaces uh, where masks are required. And when we did that, we did it for a number of reasons. It was because of high hospitalization counts and case counts, and also kids at the time did not have vaccines available. Um, However, lots changed since then. Uh, There are vaccines available for children down to five years old, um, also, hospitalizations and case counts are much lower than they were, and also the CDC has, you have probably saw, adjusted their recommendations. They now do not require masking indoors as long as you're in a county that has low hospitalization rates, which we happen to be in a county where that is the case. Uh, the Playhouse this week lifted their mask requirement, as did Des Moines Public Schools And so as we talked with the staff, and we've talked with some parents, we've decided that it's the appropriate time to lift the mask requirement from our kids' ministry spaces as well. So now, moving forward, starting next week, masks will be optional uh, in all places here at Table Church. Um, Obviously, uh, we're not against masks by any means, and so if you'd like to wear one, you are certainly welcome to do so. All right. All right. So, uh, one of the most significant developments in our language in recent memory has to be the advent of the emoji. Like, the emoji has changed how we communicate in some really significant ways when you think about it. The emoji was first used in Japan. Eventually, it made its way over here to Western cultures, and now picking the right emoji can dictate the tone of your text message. It's increased our ability to communicate with humor It's increased our ability to be passive-aggressive because you put a little smiley face at the end of something kind of confrontational, you know? And uh, now people are not sure what to think. Are you being nice? or Are you being mean? I can't tell. (laughs) Interestingly, the way that Westerners have used some emojis were not at all the way Japanese designers intended them to be used. For example, uh, this emoji you may recognize. We generally use this emoji to designate anger or frustration However, in Japanese culture, a long exhale is something you do uh, in order to express pride from an accomplishment. And so, for example, um, hey mom, I aced my math test today. You'd put that emoji after that. And that doesn't quite fit with how we generally tend to use it. Um, In fact, the original name of this emoji is simply face with a look of triumph. And so we've changed that emoji a little bit. Similarly, maybe you've seen the praying hands emoji that Christians love to use to suggest that we're praying for things. Hopefully we really are when we use it. But nonetheless, we send this emoji a lot to say that we're praying. Well, that emoji originally had nothing to do with prayer. It was originally meant to suggest in Eastern cultures, hello, or thank you, or namaste, that kind of thing. Now, emojis are simply signs, and people can interpret signs differently, as we just saw. But here's something true of all signs. Signs point to a meaning beyond themselves. They take us to something else. They show us, oh, Phil must be angry. He just sent that emoji. Oh, Phil's praying for me. He just sent that emoji. Or a red octagon. Oh, I need to stop my car. You know, they always point us to something beyond themselves. Signs are how we interpret the world. A sign points to something beyond itself. Today we start a brand new sermon series called Signs of the Kingdom, and we're walking through the book of John for the next several weeks, taking a look at what John calls signs. In fact, the first half of the book of John, a lot of scholars call it the book of signs, and apparently there are seven moments in the book of John where Jesus works at miracle, but it's not just a miracle, it's a sign of something even greater, Than the miracle, the first two signs he tells us when they're happening, and this is one of them. And next week we'll see the second sign. He says this was the second sign, but then he stops numbering them and he kind of leaves it up to the reader to discern what's happening and which sign is what, or you know. And so we're going to walk through it. And there's a little bit of disagreement between scholars as to which miracles constitute the seven signs in the Book of John, Uh, but there's a fairly decent consensus. And so we're going to be doing this all the way up till Easter. And the thing that we need to learn is that signs are more than just miracles. In fact, it's important that John calls these particular ones signs and not simply miracles. They all involve miracles, but they're more than miracles. They're not simply a moment where God suspends the laws of physics or something like that. It's not not simply about the supernatural activity happening here. Uh, There's always a bigger story that they want to tell us about. There are moments where God reveals a truth about who he is and what his kingdom is like. Miracles are signs of something much more than God's power over nature. In the Gospels, miracles always point us to the bigger story of what God is up to in the world. That's what we learn from this passage today. It says in verse 11 that, Bella just read. It says, what Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory. And his disciples believed in him. So when Jesus heals somebody, yes, it's of course nice for the person who got healed, but there's more than just the person getting healed. It's a sign of what God is doing in the world. It's something much bigger than even that. I mean, this is why there was of course many people who were probably sick in the Ancient Near East 2,000 years ago, and not every single one of them was healed. But the ones that were pointed us to something even more, even bigger, even broader, than simply the sickness that they had and was now gone. So uh, let's see what this sign was and what we can learn from it today. If we're listening closely, the first four words of our passage alert us to something big. It says this, on the third day, the first four words, on the third day. Now, it might be nothing, of course, it might be just that John was trying to tell us that it happened to be the third day of the week, or it might be that John is pointing us to something more significant, that he is pointing us to the ultimate sign of Jesus' glory that happened to also be on the third day. And I'm talking, of course, about his resurrection. Now, in my experience, we should never underestimate the ability of the gospel writers to sprinkle little clues all throughout the text that take us and point us to different things. I mean, it's just like this web of interconnecting things throughout scripture. In fact, Tim Mackey of the Bible Project, he has a word for this. He calls them hyperlinks. You know how, how when you uh, click on a hyperlink online, it takes you to some other part of the internet? Well... All throughout the Bible, we have these hyperlinks, and particularly the Gospels are rich in them, hyperlinks that maybe take us to the Old Testament, or in this case, it's taking us forward in the book of John itself to the moment of Jesus' resurrection. And so we have all of these clues all throughout that kind of help us see, okay, there's something about to happen. Something of significance is about to happen here. We better pay close attention. And of course, you only know that once you've read the whole book, and then you go back and you say, oh, that was actually about this. That was pointing me to this. I never saw it. It's just a brilliant piece of literature. In fact, another little hyperlink is going to come up a few verses later. Jesus' mother Mary tells him that they have no more wine. In the ancient world, wedding parties could last for days. And so to run out of wine so early would bring tremendous shame on the couple and on their family. Now, Mary apparently knows that Jesus, you know, like Liam Neeson, has a very specific set of skills. And so she goes to Jesus, her son, and she says, Look, Jesus, they're almost out of wine. You need to do something. Now, Jesus' response to Mary sounds strange to our ears. Listen to what he says. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My hour has not yet come. It sounds like Jesus is being a little rude to his mom here, doesn't it? The fact is, though, when he says woman, I wouldn't suggest doing this to anyone, but when he says woman, uh, it was an acceptable form of address back then. It's kind of like saying madam or something like that. Uh, But once again, John is giving us a hyperlink. It's It's a little clue. Because listen, Jesus' mother only appears one other time in the whole book of John. And the other time that she appears happens to be in that moment where Jesus' hour had actually come. Jesus is hanging on the cross, and he looks down and he sees his mom, and and he addresses her in the same way. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to her, Woman, here is your son. So look, we haven't even gotten to the miracle yet <laughs> in the passage, and John is already connecting this moment to the ultimate sign of Jesus' glory, his death and resurrection. Mary seems unconcerned with Jesus' denial or refusal. Uh, she goes on to tell his servant, the servants to do whatever Jesus tells them to do. I love this exchange. It's just like you know uh, how real families operate. Mom tells son to do something. Son gives excuse. Mom doesn't give a rip and moves on anyway. And there's some real family dynamics happening here between Jesus and Mary. It says in verse 6 nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. I want you to notice about this sentence how detailed that sentence is. Like, John gives a whole lot of details. He tells us they're made out of stone. Normally, they would have been made out of clay. They're stone, which means that they're important. It's a lot harder to make a jar out of stone than it is to make a jar out of clay, particularly one that big, one that holds 20 to 30 gallons. And so he tells us they hold 20 to 30 gallons. He tells us that they're huge, tells us they're made of stone, tells us that there's six of them, which tells us that Jesus is about to make a whole lot of wine. We're talking about 120 to 180 gallons of wine. In the Old Testament, wine, by the way, would be another hyperlink. Takes us to the Old Testament now. For example, you might go to Amos chapter 9. It says, New wine will drip from the mountains and flow from all the hills, and I will bring my people Israel back from exile. They will rebuild the ruined cities and live in them. They will plant vineyards and drink their wine. They will make gardens and eat their fruit. And so wine symbolizes the moment that God is going to stand firm on his promises, come through on his promises, and he's going to restore Israel back to where they were. This is this is talking about the Messiah, somebody who would come and he would lead God's people back to freedom, out of exile, back to the place where they know they belong where God had promised them that they would be. Wine is a symbol of God's abundant blessing and presence throughout the Bible. And here, Jesus takes all of that rich symbolism, all the hyperlinks going back to the Old Testament. He takes them all, right? And he kind of bundles them all together. And he makes not just a little bit of wine, he makes an overwhelming amount of delicious wine. Like the master of the ceremonies even says this. He, sa- he has somebody, he says, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink, but you have saved the best till now. So the point is clear. You remember how I said signs point us to something else. It's not just about the cool whatever Jesus did to make the molecules change into wine molecules. It's about so much more than that. It's pointing us to the fact that that day that the prophet spoke of is arriving in Jesus. It's finally here. God's promises are coming true. Our God is being faithful to us. And listen... You may have read the Old Testament. You may have heard the promises and the prophecies. But Jesus is doing it in such an overwhelming fashion. Jesus is bringing it in a way that is so much greater and richer and more abundant than we could have ever imagined. We're talking 180 gallons of the best wine you've ever had here. He's not just kind of fulfilling these prophecies. He's like annihilating them, you know. Like it's just way beyond anything anyone would have imagined. So, as we've seen, this story is very rich in meaning um, because it's a sign. It points to something beyond itself. So often we get caught up in like, what are the scientific mechanics of this? No, that's, it's about who God is. It's about what God is like and what it's like to live in his kingdom and what he's trying to do in the world and how we can be a part of it. That's what the sign is trying to communicate to us. So let's just notice three things that it shows us today. First, Jesus points out the bankruptcy of hollow religion. Jesus points out the bankruptcy of hollow religion. It says he uses jars that are meant for ceremonial washing for his miracle. So these jars are used to wash before people would sit down to a feast or a festival or something like that. in um, order to designate some sort of ritual purity, religious purity. It was one of many religious rituals that people engaged in and sometimes... Sometimes these rituals that we saw in the New Testament, sometimes uh, they were twisted. And people would use them not as a way to, to honor God, not as a way to become more holy, but rather as a way to make themselves look better and a way to exclude others. And we see this happening all the time in the New Testament. There were those who were most concerned with these religious practices. Uh, they would sometimes go so far as to even... Jesus tells us tithe, they would tithe a tenth of their spices. So a tithe is where you give a tenth of what you have, you know, to uh, the, the work of the Lord in the world. And uh, they would take, imagine somebody with a little bag of cumin <laughs> and they're like, they get a little tenth of it. They put it in a little tiny bag and they take it to the temple and they give it to the priest and they say, look at me. I mean, I'm so holy. Like they were doing that kind of thing. And sometimes these same people would chastise other people for walking too far on the Sabbath. And then they would pray loudly in the streets so that people would hear them and people would notice them. And they would dress in different ways. To, they would distinguish them. And they would do all of these things. But Jesus is saying, look, those people are just empty jars. All that stuff, all that hollow religion, it's just empty jars. There's no wine in them. They have the form. They don't have the substance. Look, when Mary says... They have no more wine to Jesus. I I really believe we're supposed to read between the lines here. That is a commentary on the spiritual state of God's people. They're all out of wine. They become empty. They become hollow. They're in love with their rituals. They're in love with their feasts. They're in love with looking good. They're not in love with the God that they claim to serve. I spent some time in this sermon trying to figure out what, if Jesus was here today, what would that miracle look like? You know, we don't have ceremonial washing jars. You know, we don't like wear tassels on our robes. We don't put phylacteries on our heads. Like, we don't do that stuff, but we still have religious rituals. You know, we, we still, we're doing one right now, actually. We're all here. You all are looking at me, listening to me preach a sermon. We're going to take communion in a little while. Like, we still have our religious rituals that can still become empty and still become hollow. We can still have the form, but not the substance today. And so what would Jesus do if he were here today? I prayed about this. I think this is a word from the Lord. Here's what he would do. Imagine that you came to church one day and the chairs were all gone, and instead of chairs, there were just trampolines everywhere. Okay? Okay. Uh, When I said this is a word from the Lord, I've met the opposite. This is probably crazy, actually. Um, (laughs) uh, And it would be even better if we were like a traditional church building with pews, you know, because pews are a little more ritualistic than these nice chairs are. Imagine you come in the church and the pews are gone. Instead, it's just the room is full of trampolines and bounce houses. So if we came here and we did that, uh, first of all, I get here a little before 6 in the morning. If I walked in and there was a bunch of trampolines in here, I would start freaking out. I would call the director of the playhouse. They'd be like, hey man, we got trampolines. Like, where's our chairs? What are we supposed to do? And then maybe the band would start showing up and we'd start setting up, they'd be like, oh, weird, trampolines, you know? I would be like, I know, I don't know what to say. Uh, you know, let's just make do with what we got. Maybe people can kind of sit on the trampolines and maybe we'll have some worship with the trampolines and stuff and... You know, so we set up and we, we get ready for church. You guys just start coming in for service and you'd be like, Phil, what's the deal with the trampolines? I'm like, I don't know. And some of you parents would be trying to keep your kids from jumping on the trampolines, you know? And we start worshiping and you just making do with what we had. But you know what would happen? One of y'all start jumping on these trampolines. It'd probably be my son, Rowan. And once one of you started jumping on the trampolines, another person would start jumping on the trampoline too. And then another, and then another, and another. And pretty soon, every one of you would be jumping on trampolines, and the band would be up here all weird, trying to figure out what we're supposed to do until we looked at each other and we shrugged our shoulders, took off our guitars, and Jay would like leap off the stage and get a big bounce. <laughs> and pretty soon, everybody would be jumping around, and you know, we'd be giggling, and we'd be having a good time. You'd be meeting people you'd never talked to before, because how can you not be friends when you're in a bounce house with somebody? And before you know it, this place would look nothing like church as usual, but it would look a whole lot like the kingdom of God. It would be a place of abundant joy where appearances no longer matter because nobody looks graceful when they're jumping on a trampoline. Jesus would have taken our religious ritual and he would have done something with it. He would have kind of jujitsued us into looking more like the kingdom of God. So let me ask you this Do you have joy in your religion? Or does your spiritual life look like a bunch of old jars? Empty or jars full of stagnant old water. Look, we must never let what we do here become hollow. Become just rote. I mean, if you're just going through the motions here today, you all should tell me because I might be able to make more money doing something else. I don't know. But if that's all this is, then we're wasting our time. The good news is I think that most people who didn't really care about this COVID probably kind of gave them an off-ramp. And so I assume that most of us here today are here because they want to be. Um, But when you come here, my hope is that we are doing it in order to receive something from God. Not something from me. A word from God. That's always fresh. That's always new. That's always something that will sustain us. So Jesus shows us the bankruptcy of hollow religion, and I pray that that is not what we are here. I don't think it is, but may it never become that. The second thing we see in this passage is that Jesus puts people first. I've already said this, um, but running out of wine during a wedding banquet can bring tremendous shame on the hosts. We're talking about a small village here. This festival would have gone for days. By the end of it, everybody in the village would have probably been there at one point or another. Just think about how much work that is. So uh, this weekend we had the If Gathering. The ladies, I think 25 ladies got together for the If Gathering. Here is great. Um, Thanks to everyone that came. My wife and Kelly and Jamie, they were kind of the leadership. They put it together. Um, They organized it. And, I mean, just watching my wife, I know how much work that was for her. It was a lot of work. I mean, she's like making soup at 11 o'clock at night and stuff. Like all sorts of thought and planning and effort went into this one-and-a-half-day event for 25 ladies. Imagine doing something like that for the whole village, you know? That lasts a week. That's a lot of work. You want it to go well. And, and, and this is an honor and shame culture. Now, today we talk about keeping up appearances. That's where you try to look good on the outside when, like, on the inside, you know, you're something else or whatever. Um, but it was even worse back then. Like, in that particular culture, they valued honor so much more than we do now. Um, and, and, and so for a couple to bring shame upon themselves would spread not just to them but to their extended families. You know, your son-in-law in a new family, you don't want to shame your in-laws the first day. But that's the kind of thing we're talking about here. And this shame would kind of stick for generations to come. It's just, it's just how things worked back then. And so when Mary tells Jesus that they're out of wine, it's obviously what she's saying. She's saying, Jesus, do something or these people will be put to shame. And Jesus doesn't sit down and interview the couple and check their record. He doesn't say, well, you know, they really should have been smarter at the wine they had. It doesn't do that. He just lavishly loves them, and he even colors outside the religious lines a bit to do it. There are groups in our community today who would never set foot in a church because over and over and over again, Christians have emphatically not put people first. We've put our religious codes first. We've put our sense of honor first first. We didn't want, we don't want to look bad. We want people to think, oh, they must associate with them. We do so much guilt by association in the church today, it's no wonder that we don't want to, you know, like we do this all the time. But listen, God's kingdom is visible when we put people first. This particular passage is no isolated incident. In fact, it's one of the, probably the the minor examples of Jesus putting people first in the gospels. Like over and over again, Jesus puts people over religious codes. He heals on the Sabbath. He touches people with leprosy. He eats with sinners. He welcomes Samaritans. He hangs out with prostitutes. The list goes on and on. But that's a message we still struggle to get sometimes. The church is often not seen as a place of overwhelming love and grace. It's often seen as a place of strict rules and boundaries and judgmentalism. But too often that reputation is deserved. It's not always deserved. Sometimes it is, though. Jesus put people first, and so should we. And the third and final thing I want to share that Jesus shows us is that Jesus shows the abundance of God's kingdom. He shows the abundance of God's kingdom. So like we saw, Jesus didn't just make a little bit of wine. He made perhaps up to 180 gallons Of the best wine you've ever had. So the symbolism is pretty rich here. God's kingdom is a place of lavish abundance. It's not a place of scarcity. In God's kingdom, you don't have to fight for your place. You don't have to ration things out. There's enough for us. There is enough grace and mercy for everybody. In January, Natalie and I did something unexpected. We bought our kids a puppy. If you'd have told me six months prior that that was going to happen, I would have probably laughed at you. But I don't know. Things changed. My kids had been asking for one. Uh, I started kind of researching dogs and um, looking at breeds and allergies and prices and good breeder practices and all that stuff. Um, and then one day a puppy came available from a breeder nearby for a price that we could afford. And so we jumped at the opportunity. And so Theo has joined our family. I have a picture of Theo a day or two after he came home. He's pretty awesome, and we love him an awful lot. Um, But, you know, one of our criteria when searching for a dog, Natalie and I knew that we didn't want a very big dog because we have a small house, we have a small yard, and so we knew a smaller dog would be best. Now, Theo was listed on the breeder's website as a, quote, micro, mini, golden doodle. That sounds pretty small, right? Right? He was called a micro, mini, golden doodle. And they said that he would reach a maximum weight of 35 pounds. Some of you must know more about dogs than me, because you're laughing at the, already. So I thought, okay, 35, that's probably a little bit bigger than what we wanted, but I mean, he seems like such a great puppy, so we're going to go for it. So I, a couple days after bringing Theo home, I took him to the vet, and the vet said, hey, your dog is in great health, but um, that is not a mini golden doodle. That is a full-size golden doodle. There's nothing micro or mini about that golden doodle. He says he's 21 pounds and he's only 10 weeks old, which means he's probably going to be over 70 pounds. I said, no, no, the breeder said 35 pounds. I have it in writing. I met his parents. His dad is a little poodle like this big. He says, I don't know what to tell you, but that dog is not going to be 35 pounds. Today, Theo is 16 weeks old, and he weighs around 30 pounds already. He's got a long ways to go. He's definitely still growing. Look, I know some of you are like, dude, you, how, did you, how did you not know? Like, just, I'm like, I don't know anything about dogs. You know, I took their word for it. it. They said 35 pounds. I met the parents. I don't know. At least I thought I did. So here's the point. God has blessed us with abundantly more dog than we could have ever bargained for. And that's what he's done with his grace and mercy for us. The kingdom of God looks like hundreds of gallons of delicious wine at a party. It looks like so many fish that your nets are starting to break. It looks like more manna and quail than you know what to do with. It looks like 5,000 people all getting fed and then having stuff left over that you don't even know what to do with. You've got more leftovers than you can ever imagine. Over and over and over in the Bible, we see God's abundant love and grace and blessings just being poured out, this torrents of it, on his people. God gives you more than you can imagine. More grace, more love more mercy, sometimes more puppy than you ever deserve. So Christians, we need to get over the scarcity mindset. And the way that we see this scarcity mindset coming out is often when Christians try to fight culture wars. In my mind, that seems like something of a scarcity mindset that we think we must go and we must draw these harsh lines in our communities. I'm not saying we don't have convictions, but when we do it without a heart of love, then that is a scarcity mindset. When we see ourselves as going to war with other people, going to battle with other people, we are forgetting the fact that the Bible says the battle is not against flesh and blood. It is a scarcity mindset that drives us to see others as our enemies. This is explicitly not The way of Jesus. So, how can you show abundant love to your circle this week? How can we as a church show abundant love to our community? How can you testify to a kingdom where God lavishly pours out more than we could ever ask or imagine, as it says in Ephesians? Let's be a church that has a mindset of abundance. Let's be a church, a congregation. We're not very big, but let's be a church that has an outsized amount of blessing that we pour out into our community. Honestly, I think we kind of do. Moses shared a little bit about the, the teachers at Edmonds. They just, they don't know what to think about us over there. Like, they love us. And I, I, we love them. And I mean, it's just, it's awesome. And I hope that God continues to bring things through that to the point where maybe more and more people will start to say, you know what, I never thought much about Christians, but boy, something about this group of people. They just give and they give and they give and they give and they don't stop. That's who we need to be. God's kingdom has enough for us. So let's ourselves be a sign. Remember what a sign does? It points to something beyond itself. Let table church be a sign about the goodness and the love and the power and the graciousness of God, about the joy that it is to live in the way of Jesus and about it is to live in his kingdom. Let's be a sign that points to the never-ending goodness of God. I want to share with you guys something that is on my heart about Table Church. And let me just preface this by saying that Table Church is an amazing church. And I'm very proud about all the things that we've done in the community and how we've walked through COVID and racial unrest and all these things. We've been a church, and I'm not just, I'm not just saying me. I'm like all of us in the team, and the staff, and everyone here. Like, we have faced some difficult things and we have been faithful through them. But there's one area that, I don't know what the word would be, let me just tell you, we have baptized one, per- we've baptized one person in the last 18 months. It's been even longer than that since somebody has come to Christ at Table Church. Look, we do good in a lot of things. We're not doing very good there. And that is an area that is very close to God's heart. And so who is your one person in your life that God has placed in your circle that you can start to pray for? earnestly that they would come to know jesus that they would enter the way of jesus that they would experience the abundant life that is the kingdom of god who is that person for you i'm not asking you to do anything other than pray right now i'm not asking you to go to them tonight and say if you were to die tonight no i'm not i don't want you to do that i just want you to say god because it's the holy spirit that works in a person's life what's our job our job is to be attentive to be the kind of people that have eyes to see when the window opens and the Holy Spirit is moving in somebody's life and say, hey, I think I can connect you to the reason for that. So who's that person? And as you came in today, I believe you you received a a card, a blank piece of cardstock. If you don't have one, there's some up here. Um, We're going to take communion here in a second. And would you write the person's name on the card and uh, just drop it in this basket and we're going to make a deal. You and me, we're going to pray for that person, okay? I'm going to go through the cards and I'm going to pray over every single one of them. And I'm going to do it continually. I want you to do it as well. If you want to give me a little more context, you can. If you want to give me their, your, you don't have to put your name, but if you want to, you can. You can tell me who this person is, if you know anything that might help me pray. If you just want to put their name, that's totally fine too. You put Joe on the card, I'm going to pray that Joe would come to know Jesus. We're going to start doing this and a year from now, I want to stand up here and be able to say that there was more than just one. I'm not saying one's not important, not one's not significant, but I believe that God has abundantly more for us. I'm convinced that this is a prayer that God can get down with, you know what I'm saying? Like sometimes you're like, God, check my heart in this. No, this one, God is with us on this. Like he wants to see more people come into his kingdom. And so we can be praying for this as a church, and I, I think we're going to. Um, So we're gonna take communion here and and as you come, think about the fact that Jesus' body was broken for you, his blood was poured out for you and other people, he did it for other people and they don't even know it. They don't even know it. Who is that in your life? Paul says this. He says, for I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so, Lord Jesus, today we come to you believing that you are the God of abundance, who lavishly pours out his love and grace upon us. We come in humility and repentance, Lord, Asking not only your forgiveness, but also, God, that you would heal our hearts and help us, our hearts, to break for what breaks yours. As we come and take this sacrament, Lord, would your grace be communicated to us and may we leave here changed, people on mission with you. We pray all these things in your name. Amen.